0: Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. Um, I'm I'm about to uh, invite Paul Frick up this morning to address us from the word. And I just want to introduce you. um, Some of you might think, you know, who's that guy that think of Paul? You think of that guy over there playing the bass. Or if you talk to him, you think, oh, it's that guy who's always making word puns. Um, And by always, I mean always. Uh, But then if you get to know him, you're like, oh, there's that guy who's always encouraging people, and he is uh, that guy. But uh, what you might not know about Paul is that he used to be a pastor. Actually, for 16 years, he was pastoring a church. Um, And and you might not know this about Ironworks Church, but we have about a half dozen (laughs) previous pastors who worship with us, five or six uh, here. And I, I just want us to be sensitive to that and be aware this is something that, that God has given us, sort of a gift uh, that he has, and to appreciate that. And we, we believe that um, Paul is during this time called periodically to address us from the pulpit. And so we're privileged to, to be able to have him to do that uh, uh, for us, and he's gonna be doing it today. So I want you to open your hearts and understand this is something that God is doing and received from him as he addresses us from our wonderful book, the book of Romans. Paul?
2: Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, the weight of what happens when someone preaches is weighing very heavily on me. And I pray, Lord, that you will never make it lighter. I don't want to to approach your word carelessly or frivolously. But Lord, I thank you for the Holy Spirit. I thank you that he not only caused these words to be recorded and has brought them safely down through the ages, but that he has these here today for us. Lord, honestly, especially for me, I need this passage. So I pray that you would help me to speak your word clearly and honestly and faithfully. Help me to hear you speaking. Help us all to hear what you have to say to us today. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. This is a tough passage. Uh, Josh Olson and I were assigned to chapter 7 of Romans, and we were talking about who would do which section, and I made the comment that this was the fun section. So we said, good, you can do it. <laughs> now, there's controversy about this passage because there are some who think, you know, when the apostle Paul is writing this, he can't possibly be writing as a Christian because Christians are victorious. There are others who think, Well, sometimes Christians stumble, and so he's writing as what they refer to as a carnal Christian, somebody who is kind of saved by the skin of their teeth. But the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this, was a believer. And I think that he was writing to reflect the state of his own heart. I know that what he's written reflects the state of my own heart. So today, I want to talk to you about the battle within, the struggle that Christians face as we wrestle with sin and the tendency to sin within our own hearts. And to start that off, I want to ask you, do you know how to lose a battle? I want to give you a time, August 26, 1346. The place is North France. The setting is the Hundred Years' War. Don't worry, I'm not gonna talk for 100 years. The issue for the battle is the crown of France. The king of France kept taking lands from the English king in France. And so the, Fran- the, the English king declared the French king illegitimate and said, I'm going to come take your throne. It's Kind of a cheeky way to approach international diplomacy. The situation on, in August, Edward has been in France for weeks. I want you to keep keep in mind, this is not the the modern France. Golden fields and beautiful uh, architecture and easy transportation. This is a France where one village might not know where the next city is. They know where the next village is. Where to get from one place to another, you're going through the woods on roads that if one person goes along them, they're okay. If a few thousand people go along them, they turn into quagmires, full of mud, full of dust, just almost impassable. He's been doing this for six weeks. He landed on the, on the coast near uh, where uh, Omaha Beach would be the landing site for the Allies in the last century. He's been doing what's called a a, a, a cavalry raid across North France all the way down to almost two miles from Paris where the French king Philippe says alright, enough is enough get off my turf Philippe grabs his army 26,000 to 30,000 men and begins chasing Edward now as Edward's been coming down he's been eating everything he could find and what he couldn't eat he would burn now he's having to go back the path that he's come down. There's no food. Nobody likes him where he's been. He's burned their homes. He's burned their fields. And he's, he has 12,000, maybe 15,000 men. And the cream of the French army is hot on his tail. How do you lose a battle? Thinking that... Uh, Being outnumbered more than two to one is probably not a good thing. You need to choose your ground carefully. So Philip, uh, Edward sets up a battle to save his life, save his throne, maybe even to save England itself. Philip, on the other hand, is furious. He's ready to kill Edward and his men to destroy this pretender to the throne to get him off of French soil. So here's the question. If both armies have competent leadership, have courageous and experienced men, but one side is not only more than double the size of the other, but is better armed, has superior forces, has the home field advantage, is more rested, better fed, and they're thirsting for blood, which army's gonna win? Hold that thought. Why am I talking about wars and battle in church? If, what, can we, what do we care about such things? I mean, especially since, good grief, it's centuries ago. Even the bones are dust. Why do we care about these things? Well, I'll be honest with you, This because every Christian is engaged in battle. Every Christian is engaged in a war for our own hearts, for the hearts of those we love. One of, each of us has to face the fact that even though we are called to be holy, even when we think we've been doing well, we keep on sinning. We keep on sinning. Let me say that again. We keep on sinning. It happens with such regularity, we become discouraged, we feel defeated. We may reach the point where we give up the fight before it ever even begins. How do you change that? How do you change from being not just on the brink of defeat, but having surrendered, gaining the victory? Is there any hope that, that, that you can win the war within? The tension between what we are and what we should be, what we are and what we could be. Yes, that's, thank you for switchfoot. Uh, if you want to win the war within, there are three things you need to keep in mind. First, is this sin is more powerful than you are. Sin is more powerful than you are. Secondly, Christ is more powerful than your sin. And finally, you need to know what it takes to win not just the battle, but the war. So let's look at that first point. Sin is more powerful than than we are. Did you catch the tension in the passage that was read? I know what I should do, but I do the opposite. I fight within myself. I feel torn. And so to the point where at the end of the passage, Paul says, Oh, Lord, have mercy. Who will deliver me from this body of death? When I say that sin is more, more, more powerful than we are, we tend to overestimate ourselves saying, I know what is right. Yeah, but do you do it? If you're a Christian, there's, I will tell you, brothers and sisters, there's a reason that non-Christians call us hypocrites. We hold up a standard that we don't meet. If you're a non-Christian, you're in good company. You also hold up a standard. That you don't meet. The sin that's within us, think about it. Our habits, our desires, the things, the little lies that we tell ourselves that it'll be okay, it's all right, the justifications, the rationalizations. But think about it sin promises what it cannot deliver, it promises pleasure. It promises power, position, influence. It says it holds all these things out in all their glittering promise. But when you fall a sin's way, what happens is you die. The promises, the things that glittered so wonderfully, disappear in smoke and ashes. It's a lie the deception yeah but i know i'm married but if i had just this other person other than my spouse things would be so much better god's made me this way so it can't be wrong if it feels so right and you destroy your family you destroy your children your spouse who at least at one time you loved These things that sin holds out to us are lies. They are deceptive. Holiness, on the other hand, feels like dying. You ever heard somebody give a testimony like, yeah, I used to smoke and drink and play around and have all sorts of fun, and then I got saved. So, well, no more fun for me. There are times when following God's way, don't steal Keep your word. Honor those in authority. All of those things, love your neighbor as yourself. All of those things cost. They're hard. And it feels like I'm just giving away and giving away and giving away and I never get anything back. Where's the reward in that? Righteousness can feel like dying. But the end is life. A wife who knows you love her. A husband who knows you will be there for him. Children who know that their parents care for them and love them because they sacrifice. Holiness can feel like dying, but in the end, it delivers life. Let me put it another way. Sin feels good sometimes, but it destroys you in the end. Holiness hurts sometimes but it gives hope and life in the end. If we understand that, why sin looks good but is bad, why holiness looks hard but is good, that makes you understand a little bit more why, why I say sin is more powerful than you are. If you think you can lick it on your own, look at your history. Tell me how you're doing. Well, then does that mean that based on our history we have no hope? No. This passage gives us hope because Christ is more powerful than our sin. Christ is more powerful than our sin. The last few weeks, we've been getting some incredible messages about the wonders of our union with Christ. What does it mean to be His? What does it mean to be in Him? What does it mean for Him to be in us? Because we are united to Christ in his death, we have died to sin. It is no longer our master. It no longer has authority, rulership over us. It can stand up and bark like a bad dog. But Christ has pulled its teeth. His bark is worse than its bite. Because we are united to Christ in his resurrection, we are alive to Holiness. Christ is now our master, and he's not a, he is not a cruel man to work for. He loves his people. He cares for us. In Christ, we are declared holy. In Christ, we are also to become holy, and he does what is necessary in us to bring that about. We do this through his power, not ours. In the last 100 years, we've seen some crazy things happen. One of the most horrifying of those was the dropping of the first atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan, August 1945. One weapon with the power of 15,000 tons of conventional explosive wiped out that city, flattened it, made it a desolation. People who would go there a year afterwards were amazed at the destruction. And, and for, for years, generations after that, people who were exposed to the radiation have suffered from cancer and other problems. What a destructive force. But I remember in 1980, something else happened that was even more destructive. For those of you who were alive then, does the, does the name Mount St. Helens bring anything to mind? Mount St. Helens erupted. This volcano blew away a huge chunk of its cone, devastated forests for miles around. They say that just the thermal pulse, just the, the heat energy of that of that explosion was twenty-four megatons. That's twenty-four million tons of explosive worth of heat and damage done. That's over 1,600 times more powerful than the bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima. So we've got a lot of power. We can can change this planet. We can save it or we can destroy it. Well, maybe not so much. Because I know something that's even more powerful. I know someone who's got more power. You see, God created the atom. God created Mount St. Helens. He made this whole earth and all that is in it. He made our solar system. He made the Milky Way. He made all the uncounted galaxies of the universe. He is not dismayed by the light years of distance from one side to the other. He is not dismayed by the incredible detail of, the, of quark mechan- quantum mechanics. He knows it all. He controls it all. That's power. That's the power that is at work within you and within me if you, are, if you trust Christ as your Savior. This is the power of God that he uses for your salvation. He's the creator of the universe, and even more than just the act of making, he is the razor of the dead. How do we know that God can win the victory over sin? Because death is the power of sin. Christ has broken the power of death. He died for our sins and transgressions. He now lives for our righteousness. And he calls us to follow in him and be strong in him, to be mighty in him. He is our hope in the battle. So to win the battle within you, you've got to remember that sin is more powerful than you are, that Christ is more powerful than your sin. There's one last thing. You have to know what it takes to win the battle and to win the war. It's not just a, a, a power equation. Which side is more mighty? You've got to know your weaknesses. Know your enemy. Know who you're fighting against. I want to say this very clearly. Our battle is not against people. Our enemies are not the ones who disagree with you. They're not the ones who call you names. They're not even the ones who may attack you. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities in high places, the ones who, the spiritual forces behind this world, who are in rebellion against God. Those are the enemy. People are not our enemy. We are called to love, care for, respect all those who are made in God's image, which is every man, woman, and child. That is crucial for us as believers because if we wage war against them, we have lost the war. Not only do you have to know your enemy, who to fight and who not to fight, you've got to know your strength, your friend. I don't know how you feel about salvation. For a long time, I've kind of had the equation that God the Father was up in heaven scratching his head thinking, look at those rebels down there. What am I going to do with them? And finally, Jesus raises his head and says, if i got to do it, I'll die for them. That's not the picture the Bible gives us. Do you remember what the Bible says? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. The father so loved you that he gave his son for your sin. He sent Jesus Christ to die to change your heart, to call you into his family, to make you his. And the son was not up in heaven saying, If I gotta, I gotta. For the joy that was set before him, Christ scorned the shame and he went to the cross to purchase for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation around the world. Yes, even here in Phoenixville. This is the strength that we have. This is the Father who loves, the Son who comes and dies for our sin, the Holy Spirit who calls us to faith seals us into God's family and says, you belong to me, and I will never, ever let you go. Just as there is no sin that is so small that it does not deserve God's condemnation, there is no sin that is so great that Christ's death is impotent to pay the cost. This is the strength with which we fight, the thing that is on our side. Sometimes it looks like the forces arrayed against us are overwhelming. I want to tell you, it's not always about the force. It's about the people. Go back to France with me. Although vastly outnumbered, Edward and his men had been in this situation before, and he knew what to do. He had two great advantages. He had chosen the location for the fight, and he had longbows. He chose a battlefield that limited the number of men, that overwhelming force that Philippe had in his army, to what could fit into a narrow space. And in that narrow space between two arms of a forest, he circled the wagons. Yes, I know they're not Conestoga wagons. This is not the American West. But the cowboys did not invent that tactic. He took his wagons, flipped them on their sides, and arranged them in a horseshoe. And then he did something very strange. He took all of his knights, his mounted men, got them off the horses and put them in the middle of the horseshoe with the opening of the horseshoe facing the enemy. It's kind of like, here I am, come and get me. So the French came in, they sent in their crossbowmen who, crossbows hit really hard, but they only fire once or twice a minute. They shot their first flight of of crossbow bolts, which mostly hit the wagons. Not many men were hurt. And those crossbowmen never got a second chance to fire because Edward had hidden his archers behind the wagons. And the English longbow not only has a longer reach than the crossbow, but it can fire seven or ten times a minute. In the back, the French army, thinking that the English were being overwhelmed, kept sending in wave after wave after wave of men. Wave after wave of them were killed, destroyed by the archers. The cream of the French army, the ruling class of their land, perished that day. England and Edward won that battle because he knew his weaknesses and his strength. We are at war. You got some options. You can surrender on your own. You can try fighting on your own. But if you want to win, be allied to your strength. Be united with your Savior and show your enemy no mercy. Even though your sinful nature is stronger than you are, remember that your Savior is stronger than your sin. How do you know this? Look at the table. This is where sin thought that it had won the victory. The Lord of all, the creator of all, was crucified. He died. And for three days there was silence. But on the third day, Christ raised from the dead. And the Father has now put him at his right hand where he intercedes for us. He prays for us. He is for us. He is for you this is how we win the battle. This is how we win the war. Remembering who our strength, who our Savior is. Placing in him all our trust. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this war seems like it will never end. But because of your word, we know that it will end and that we will win. Not because of our strength or our power, but because you have won the battle. Salvation is of the Lord. Thank you for that confidence. Thank you for that reassurance. Pray, Lord, that as we fight this week, keep turning our eyes to the cross, to remember Christ's death and his resurrection, to know that in him the war, the war is won. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.